This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. There are 7.6 billion people on our planet, give or take a couple hundred million. That's a wild number for somebody like me who came from a town of 6,000 people. My graduating class in college was around 900 people. My graduating class in high school was around 77, if I remember correctly. And in each of those cases, we had some common experiences that we went through together as those different groups. For example, in my hometown, the approximately 6,000 of us, if we were there like I was in the mid-80s, you remember the 1986 hailstorm that startled us awake in the early morning and just decimated trees. It destroyed rooftops. It totaled cars, shattered glass everywhere. It was a mess. People I went to college with, it was a military setting. So we went through basic training together. We marched together. We wore the same clothes. We ate the same food. In my high school class, we walked the same hallways together. We sat in the same classrooms. We had the same teachers. And even some of those I went to elementary school with, they might even remember in fourth grade, the day I wasn't feeling so well, and I got sick in front of the class and threw up in front of everybody, missed the student teacher by about that far. Uh, That might be too much information for you. But the point is, we had these common experiences together, and I can describe them to you, but you weren't there, so you'll never quite understand exactly what it was like to be there. You could do the same with me. You could tell me about your friends, your own experiences, the places you've lived and been. And I wouldn't quite understand them the way you do, though, because they're a common experience for you. Why am I talking about this? Well, there is one experience that all 7.6 billion of us on the planet have together in common. There's one experience that we really would rather not even talk about. We would rather not think about. We would rather not even have any discussion about. We would rather it didn't even exist. But that one common experience is something that we all face. Now, we haven't gone through it yet. We can anticipate it, though. We know it's on the horizon for us somewhere. And we have experience tasting it, though. And it's something that we would rather avoid altogether. We're going to look this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you're watching this, at John chapter 11. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me. It's good if you actually have the scriptures in front of you. If you have it on your device, go ahead and open up your Bible app to John chapter 11. We're going to see how in this common experience that we would rather not even talk about, Jesus actually meets us there. If you're with us for the first time today, we are continuing on in a series called Jesus I Am, the I Am who changes everything. We've seen how Jesus is the I Am who is the I Am of the Old Testament. When God described himself to Moses as the great I Am, that Jesus repeats that in the book of John. We've seen how Jesus also through these seven I Am statements has said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And today we're going to look at the next I am statement that Jesus has for us in John chapter 11. And as we do that, we will see that in this common experience that we have, this place that 
can be a place of great despair, that Jesus meets us exactly in that spot and offers us great hope. So let's look together at the text of John chapter 11, starting in verse one. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So just pause right there for a second. That sets the stage for where we're going. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are siblings. Jesus is away from where they live. They're in a town called Bethany that's really near Jerusalem. And Jesus is with his disciples far away on the other side of the Jordan River. And Jesus receives word that Lazarus, his friend, the one he loves, is ill. And as we read on, we'll see this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Let's pick it up actually in verse 11. Jesus has been talking to his disciples and it says, after saying these things, he said to them, being his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. What is that common experience that unites all 7.6 billion of us? Well, maybe you saw it before we even read the passage. It's death. Death is the thing that we would rather not even think about or talk about. Of course, during this past year, death has been on people's minds as we've dealt with this global pandemic. But death is a thing that we would rather just avoid altogether. The British theologian and pastor John Stott commented this way. He said, whereas our Victorian forebears, the people who had come before him in the like 1800s, had a morbid fascination with death, but never spoke of sex, the contemporary generation is obsessed with sex while death is the great unmentionable. We would rather not even talk about it. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about death. Going back to the very earliest pages of scripture, you don't need to turn there, but going back to even as early as Genesis chapter two, we read about death. There you see God creating everything and placing humanity inside of this perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And this is what God instructed the man, Adam, who he had created. He says, he took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God places humanity into this garden and gives them every tree available for them to eat, except one. And of course, they choose the one that they are not to eat from. It's rebellion against God. That's a simple definition of what sin is. And sin brings death. Death is like an invader into our world, a thing that does not belong. God created us for life and for blessing, but instead, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, death has entered into our experience. And death is something that we cannot avoid. It's like an enemy 
that's after us and there's no getting around it. Author and pastor Tim Keller has said this. He said, all the wars and plagues have never raised the death toll. It has always been one for each and every person. We might also just say along with that, not only that all of the wars and plagues have never raised it, but all of the medical advances and technology have never lowered it. Death is an enemy we cannot avoid. It's something that we all experience. We would all rather not even talk about it, but it confronts us as the enemy that it is to us. But it's in this kind of despair where we feel so vulnerable in the face of death. We feel like the illusion of our security and safety and control over life is stripped away from us. But as it is, as we face that despair that death can bring, as we face the fact that it can rattle our faith, Jesus comes to us in this incredible moment, this incredible claim. If death is an enemy that we cannot avoid, Jesus makes a claim we cannot ignore. Let's pick up back with the story. In verse 17, it says this, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So as Martha and Jesus have this conversation, it's initiated by Martha's statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's grieving in Martha's words. There's anguish. There's maybe even a a touch of despair. Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. She has a faith though as well. Her faith is that Jesus can change the outcome, that Jesus could have been so powerful in that moment had he been there, that maybe Lazarus would still be alive. And Jesus, rather than focusing on her grief, focuses on her faith and he presses against it to test her. And he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha expresses what was a common belief in that day, There would be a general resurrection at the last day, but there was nothing in their minds for as an expectation for a single resurrection to happen. Sometime before then or anytime after this, the thought was that Lazarus is dead and there's nothing that can happen now to undo it. So Jesus says now in this statement that now is the fifth of our seven I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. It's important to keep in mind, just like the other statements that we've looked at before, that we cannot separate who Jesus is from what he does, from what he offers. Not only 
does Jesus give bread of life, but he is the bread of life. Not only does Jesus offer or present a light for the world, but he is the light of the world. He's not just like a good shepherd, but he is the good shepherd. Here in this case, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Resurrection looks ahead with a hope. It's a future looking kind of concept that looks ahead with great hope to something in our future for those who believe. Jesus' statement, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, helps explain what resurrection is, what it means. Death is something that we pass through, but continue on in life. In the fullest sense of the word, though, resurrection means a physical resurrection. It's not only that our soul continues to live beyond death, but that one day there will be a physical resurrection of our bodies. In a way that we can't fully grasp right now, we will have new bodies that resemble the bodies we have right now, but will be in a glorified state, made new to never die again, to never decay or deteriorate again. We look, af- we look ahead to that resurrection that Jesus offers us and it gives us great hope. On the other side, we have life. If resurrection is a future hope, life is a present reality. Life is explained by Jesus' statement, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you ever think about this? If you believe in Christ, eternal life has already begun. Eternal life is not something that we look ahead to and hope that someday it will be true for us. No, eternal life is something that we have right now in this moment if we are in Christ, if we believe in him. These end up being two sides of the same coin, resurrection and life. It's what Jesus offers us. It's the claim that he's making in the face of Lazarus's death. And it's intended to give great hope to Martha as she's dealing with the agony, the reality of what she's facing. This is the reality of who Jesus is. It's the claim that he makes. But like all of Jesus's I am statements, like all of his claims, it's not just words, but he demonstrates what he means with his actions. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So just catch what's going on here. Martha has gone back to the house in Bethany to get Mary, to tell Mary that Jesus is here. And Mary then gets up and goes out to meet Jesus as well. And the conversation with Jesus between Jesus and Mary is about to unfold. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact words that Martha had expressed to Jesus earlier. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary's words are just a complete restatement of what Martha had already said. But before, when Martha said those words, we didn't catch any emotion coming out of Jesus. But it's a far different scene here. Here we see that Jesus is not unconcerned, uncaring, unmoved by what's going on. In fact, Jesus himself becomes very emotional in this moment. The text here says that when Jesus sees Mary weeping and those around her weeping as well, he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't really grasp the full extent to what's going on inside of Jesus in terms of his emotions. What the Greek language really is saying here that doesn't come through in our English as well is that Jesus is angry, that he's indignant. In fact, some commentators even say that Jesus is outraged in his spirit and deeply troubled. Not only that, but where it says Jesus wept, it sounds the same as the tears that might be flowing out of Mary and the people around her. But John uses a different word in the original language than the word he's using for everyone else's tears. In fact, this is the only place in all the New Testament where this word is used for the kind of tears, the kind of weeping that Jesus is exhibiting here. Jesus's tears are in some way of a different nature than the tears of those around him. So why is Jesus angry? Why are his tears different from everyone else's? Well, there are a couple of potential answers to that question. Jesus is looking around and he's angry and troubled by the fact that the people around him are so devastated. He sees them mourning and grieving and carrying on in a way that expresses a kind of despair that seems to be making him angry. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians speaks of death and talks about our future hope and says that we should not grieve as those who have no hope. Now, it's perfectly healthy and right and proper for us to go through mourning when somebody dies. It's completely normal for us to express our grief and our agony. It's perfectly appropriate to cry. But there's a difference between tears that are hopeful and tears that are full of only despair. It seems like as Jesus looks around, he sees only the tears of despair around him. And not only that, death is an enemy. And death has claimed yet another victim in this scene. And as it has, Jesus is very likely angry by the fact that death has had another day. That death is there to claim his friend Lazarus. Jesus knows that death is an enemy, that death is unwanted, that it's not a part of what he intended for humanity to express. It's not the kind of life and blessing that Jesus gives. As Jesus looks around, he's angry by the scene. And just imagine, this is the king of the universe. This is the one who the apostle Paul writes about in Colossians when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is the king of the universe, the one who created Lazarus, the one who created the very rock that Lazarus's tomb is carved out of, the one who created the planets and the stars and the galaxies and the universe. And he's there with them as they are outside Lazarus's tomb. And they have no idea who is standing in their presence. They have no idea of what it means for him in that moment to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus looks around and he is deeply troubled. He's angry and his face is full of tears. This is the heart of the one who is the resurrection and life. But he's not only about the emotions, he's not only about the claims, but we can trust him because of his actions. Let's read about those. Now in verse 38, the text says this, then Jesus deeply moved again, and we should read deeply angry or indignant, outraged again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Remember Martha's statement earlier where she had expressed faith that even now she knows that God will listen to him. But here she is expressing an objection that Jesus would have the stone rolled away. We can see that whatever Martha's level of faith was earlier, that it it did not include this act that Jesus is about to do. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love how John calls Lazarus the dead man in this paragraph. Lazarus now is like a dead man walking. An ironic statement since that statement in our day means somebody on death row about to be executed. But Lazarus was a dead man who now is alive. Jesus raising him from the dead, demonstrating the power that he has as the resurrection in life. The only thing that's dying in this scene right now appears to be death itself. You see, this is where we're at in Jesus's claim. He claims to be the resurrection and life. But what we see here through his actions is that in Christ, in Jesus himself, there is a life that death cannot deny. In Jesus, there is a life that death cannot defeat. And in Jesus, there is a life that death itself cannot even survive. Lazarus's resurrection is just a taste of what Jesus being the resurrection and life means for our lives. Lazarus would die again, but he offers us this glimpse of what resurrection means. The most powerful display of resurrection and life though, our greatest source of confidence in it 
is Jesus's own resurrection and life. The apostle Paul writes at length about Jesus's resurrection in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul has this to say about Jesus's resurrection. And I would encourage you sometime this week, take a look at the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 from start to finish. It's a remarkable, remarkable reflection on the significance of Jesus's resurrection for our lives. But here's what Paul says in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Jesus's resurrection is like a prototype or what, what Paul calls the first fruits here. If you have the first fruits, that naturally means that there's more after it. And in this case, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what is in store for us, that Jesus is the first fruit, but we will follow in resurrection at some point as well. He goes on and he says, for as in Adam all die, so, as, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam brought sin and death into this world, but Jesus brings life. Jesus brings resurrection. Jesus gives us a living hope. And then Paul continues on talking about how Christ must reign until all of his enemies are underneath his feet. It's the, the picture of complete victory. And the last statement in this part, Verse 26, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death has a death sentence of its own. In Jesus, there is a life that death cannot survive. Jesus's life is more powerful than death. Jesus's life gives us great hope as we consider the reality that death is an enemy that we cannot avoid but Jesus offers us something far more powerful, a life, a resurrection that gives us hope and significance even for now. I don't know where you're at as you listen to this today, but here's just a couple things to consider. Jesus offers this resurrection life to those who believe. We've seen that word throughout this passage. It's for those who believe. If you're here listening to this right now and you are not yet someone who believes in Jesus, today is the day where you can begin this eternal resurrection kind of life that Jesus offers. Today is the day where you can believe. Apart from Christ, there is no resurrection in life in the way that Jesus is explaining it here. Apart from Christ, death is an enemy that you have no hope for. You have no hope against but Jesus offers this incredible hope because he is the resurrection in life. For those of us who are believers, think of the significance of this moment that we right now have resurrection life. It's not something we need to work to attain. It's not something that we look forward to at some point in the future, but it is ours right here in this present moment and place. We have eternal life. And of course, think about the people around us who believed in Jesus, but who are no longer with us. We have the hope knowing that though they have died, they still live. And that one day they, like us, will be resurrected. This is the hope that we have as we believe in Jesus. The missionary, Leslie Newbegin, 
said this, resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Jesus is that living face and that name for resurrection life. In just a couple moments, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. So you can pause the video in just a minute and go ahead and gather the elements to prepare for that. But let's take a minute now just to reflect on what we've talked about and to to praise our Lord and Savior for the fact that he offers us this great hope in the face of death, that we have resurrection life through him. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a joy to know that you are the resurrection and life who gives us great hope, even in the midst of something that can cause unmentionable despair. Lord, I pray that we would be people, even as we listen to this right now, that we would be people who believe in you in such a way that this wouldn't just be head knowledge, but this would be a true, real, present comfort for our lives as we think about our own death and as we think about the death of others around us who have trusted you. Lord, may this, may this word from your mouth that you are the resurrection and life give us great joy and comfort our souls in this moment. And Father, I pray for my friends who are listening to this right now who have never taken that step to trust you, to place their faith in you. Lord, I pray this would be the day where they believe for the first time and they follow you even into resurrection life. We ask this all in your powerful, mighty name, Jesus Christ, amen. You know, Perry, I'm so thankful you gave that message today. It was an encouragement to me on the statements of Jesus Christ being the resurrection from the grave. You made this comment that it's a future reality, which brings us a present hope. And that present hope that we get to remember the Lord's death and resurrection around the communion table. You had mentioned Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, reminding them of Christ's resurrection, and then also connecting that with the Lord's table. Would you read that passage for us? Yeah, this is from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Here's what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we think about this whole idea of taking the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming Christ's death. And some of you may think death is kind of a funny way to talk about this. But remember that this is all talking about the death of Jesus. And when we when we talk about the death of Jesus, we're also talking about the resurrection that he offers us through his death. Jesus is the one who, when he went to Jerusalem to rescue his friend Lazarus from the grave, he went closer to his own grave. He's the one who gave his life for us so that we can have life together. So as we prepare now, let's take the bread. And just as we read, remember that 
Jesus is the one who took bread on the night he was betrayed and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Father, we are just so grateful that this sacrifice would come to us so that we might experience true resurrection life with you. Let's take the bread. It was both the bread and the cup on that Passover table that Jesus used to speak of his death and our remembrance of his victory over the grave. And it's this Passover cup that spoke about the blood that was shed of an innocent lamb so many years before in a land of slavery in Egypt that brought them protection and Passover that would draw them out of a place of slavery into a place of promise, a place of death to a place of life. And so he took the cup from the Passover table and said, this is my blood, a new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins, that all those who would believe would belong to him and be brought into life. Let us drink in remembrance of him. As we celebrate the Lord's victory over death at the communion table, now let us turn and celebrate his resurrection as we lift our voices in praise. <laughs> 